Welcome to this talk from the Canon Do Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Canon Do's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at canondo.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G. Our speaker tonight is Travis. And I think everyone on this call knows Travis. Do you have a title for your talk, Travis? Yes, it's called True Eternity Still Flows. Good evening. Good evening. It's nice to see everyone. Thanks for being here. I uh, see uh, Teresa's on even. It's very early for, for you. Nice to see you. Um, yeah, the talk is called True Eternity Still Flows, which is part of the, um, the Jewel Mir Samadhi that we chanted on Saturday. And uh, that's one of our uh, most beautiful um, um, sutras, the Song of the Jewel Mir Samadhi. Um, so I'd like to uh, offer an interpretation of that line. Um, the line before, uh, I'll start with that. Once basic approaches are distinguished, then there are guiding rules. But even though the basis is reached and the approach comprehended, true eternity still flows. Um, So I've been thinking about the, the differences between um, our practice and similar um, types of traditions in Western culture. And when we say meditation, what do we mean? Um, uh, as, as a start, there is a, uh, the, the full moon's coming up right now over the top of uh, these these uh, new townhouses behind us. And I can remember when I first came to Canada, that was an empty lot. And uh, so that was very nice, actually. I was, but, uh, but then when it, there, the construction went on and you learned to meditate amidst that. Um, but... Um, then one day I saw the street sign and it said reflection way. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's pretty funny. Because you can see the effect that Canando had on the neighborhood, uh, at least indirectly or, or directly. Um, but, you know, reflection is really, it's really based in rationality. It's, you know, it's trying to get a, a clear picture of what's going on in your life as part of, you know, people think being ra to be rational is to be like logical, but there's also this aspect of rationality where you're like getting some kind of perspective on your life. And, uh, you know, Les is fond of saying that 
Canandoza startup. And, uh, and I've, I've been thinking about that recently. And, um, and I've been in startups. So um, you're really passionate about the approach until you find, oh, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and then you scramble and you, you try something new. Um, you put something together that's the best, uh, the best approach that, that you have. But when it comes to something like, like a spiritual practice, we are still in a young phase and we're trying to make uh, Zen practice available and relevant to people in Mountain View. Um, we've also noticed that, you know, we get, I hear all old timers here, but you know, we'll get a fair number of people that, that, uh, come for like a month or two. Um, and I was thinking that, you know, they may just be reflecting. They may be in a life transition. They may be, um, trying to gain some kind of, uh, Clarity is very important. Um, but uh, I grew up in a Catholic tradition, and I spent a lot of time, because I went to Catholic school when I was young. I didn't, not when I was older, I went to public school, but when I was like in kindergarten through third grade, I was in Catholic school, and I spent a lot of time in church even. Like it would be like an inner period where we'd walk down there and we'd just sit in church. And um, sitting in church is different than sitting at, in a sitting hall. Um, and it's, it's more contemplative, uh, which is a little different than meditation. It is... In my uh, understanding, it is uh, there's an object of mind. There's uh, your your gaze tends to be up in church, and uh, the word contemplative has the root of it is is temple. And people in my neighborhood would say, "How is everything down at your temple?" And I I have a temple. Oh, the zendo, because I just think of it as. I think of it as a sitting hall. I don't think of it as a temple. I think of church, I think of a temple as being more like a church. And it just it strike it strikes me now how I never really noticed that before. Like I make I make this difference in my mind. Um, but back to this line. Even though the basis is reached and the approach comprehended, true eternity still flows. I think you probably some of you have heard the, the quote that Brenda is fond of there. She's like, uh, I think it's the Dalai Lama says, if science, if we don't agree with science, then we'll just go with science. Like the, the the science and the rationality, uh, you know, to me is, it's like the basis of our understanding. So, uh, the basis is reachable. If you have a good grounding of like, 
of the physical world. Um, now that is different, you know, if you go back into the ancients, but like largely in our lifetimes, like we largely kind of see things and we're all products of the same um, education on a, on a general level. Um, so, so reflection to me is in that first bucket. It's like, okay, I need to get, I need to get, I need to take a step back here and uh, look at things. And to go into uh, some real famous um, uh, verses from um, from the from the Chinese uh, ancestors. You know, there's the famous challenge that the fifth patriarch posed to his his monks to create a verse to express their understanding. And the head monk, whose name was uh, Shen Zhu, wrote, the body is a tree of wisdom, the mind but a bright mirror, at all times diligently polish it to remain untainted by dust. All times diligently polish the mirror to gain clarity. And I'm assuming it's more than just clarity of visions. It's just clarity in your life. But upon reading this, Weineng, this who eventually became the sixth patriarch, wrote, the tree of wisdom fundamentally does not exist, nor is there a stand for the mirror. Originally, there is not a single thing. So where would the dust alight? So, so I think the mirror analogies in our tradition, uh, we, it suggests we go beyond that. Um, and that our eyes are, can sometimes limit us. And that to go, on, to go beyond that, uh, we're using something beyond our intellect, uh, perhaps our hearts. Uh, perhaps a deeper wisdom. So in the Heart Sutra, it's like we disavow this, these senses, uh, or we say no, no, no sight, no sound, and no object of mind. Uh, and I think that is to emphasize to awaken to what is here now. and to be fully open to respond appropriately. And sometimes we say like thusness, just this. Where, you know, if it's just this, there's not even a speck of dust. It's just this. So that second part I think is uh, of, the, of the line and the approach comprehended. I think, I think the approach comprehended is more akin to contemplation. Um, because even though even we can have a basis of, of how things are, um, science doesn't really tell us how we should live our lives. And we don't know how to live our lives. We have to go live it. Um, 
which requires, you know, it requires a leap, some small, some large, but we have to make an effort to go out beyond what we know. And that's how we grow. Um, I had a, I had a cousin who recently passed away and, um, when I got the news, I thought about his effect, you know, on my life. And there was one detail, well, there are a lot of details, but one of the details I wanted to share was, uh, went up to his house when I was about eight or nine years old. And, uh, I've always loved music. Um, but he had a Sony Walkman. It's like the first one I'd ever seen. And it had Van Halen, 1984, loaded up in it. And, um, you know, I, I think the first song was Jump. And um, you know, his, his, uh, his daughter's about that age now. Um, But it's just a very, it's a very bright song, very positive. And, uh, you know, we, we live and we grow and we learn. Um, but I think for children, particularly, um, the support and um, the... Uh, giving them the um, encouragement to go find uh, some way of living uh, that's going to that's gonna captivate and inspire um, and make a difference. Um, that's the approach, comprehending the approach. And uh, And we're, we're, I think we're always doing that. This isn't just a linear thing. Um, and there's refinements along the way. And sometimes you reach an end. You have to come back. Okay, what am I going to do now? And then lastly, we have true eternity still flows. And this is practice. Uh, the kind of um, practice where it's uh, it never becomes stale. It's never habitual. And we're seeing what's in our lives and we're, we're, um, we're doing what we, we should do and what we what we, just what's there, again, the thusness. And if what we're doing stops flowing, then, then you come back. It's interesting how there are these details in my life that seem to flow together now. 
but uh, I've been thinking about a story that I read my girls when they were uh, were young, and um, and uh, it probably had more <laughs> impact on me as a as a dad reading it to them than it than it did as uh, them as kids. I, I asked my younger daughter the other night, do you remember me reading you out of this book? Uh, it was, it's Hans Christian Andersen. And um, she's like, yeah, yeah. I, and she opens it. She's like, you'd, you'd re always read me the Snow Queen. Um, and um, my, my, uh, I had a Danish friend who, who gave it to me. Um, and I think about class and and the circumstances under which he gave gave me gave us that book as a gift for for my older daughter's birthday and just a lot of gratitude um and uh he was he's very rational um but also very warm-hearted and um and so many people around us you know in this area are emphasizing science and rational thought and we live in an area of tech a lot of people working in tech um, so i think it can't I, I it's an open question for me whether uh that can really be a sufficient basis for people's lives um i i reached a point where it was it wasn't for me and at the same time you know we're learning and reading all the time about how Science is, uh, you know, extending into new arenas, um, socially and culturally. But the Snow Queen was written uh, in 1844, and uh, it would be kind of considered not only. Uh, I'm going to analyze it. I don't want to do that too much, but. Um, be kind of considered in that period of the romantic period. And sometimes people would say it's the, in the counter enlightenment period where the enlightenment period was really very much into uh, logic and uh, reason. Um, and Hans Christian Andersen, I think writes very tenderly about uh, his concerns about that, but his, is the pretext of the of the story is um, something I want to read to you. This is uh, he lays down this this device, magical device. At last, these demons fixed on a still more daring plan to fly up to heaven to make fun of the angels and of God Himself. Higher and higher they flew with the mirror. The more it grimaced and twisted. They could scarcely hold on to it. Up and up they went, nearer and nearer to the heaven's kingdom, until disaster. The mirror shook so violently with its weird reflections that it sprang out of their hands and went crashing down to earth, where it burst into hundreds of millions, billions, trillions of tiny pieces. And that made matters worse, even worse than before, for some of these pieces were hardly as big as a grain of sand. These flew here and there, all through the wide world, 
Whoever got a speck in his eye saw everything good as bad or twisted, for every little splinter had the same power the whole glass had. Some people caught, even caught a splinter in their hearts, and that was horrible, for then their hearts became just like clumps of ice. Some of the pieces were so big that they were used as window panes, but it didn't do to look at your friends through them. Other pieces were made into spectacles. Imagine. The demon laughed until he nearly split his sides. And as we tell this story, little splinters of magic glass are still flying about in the air. Listen, you shall hear what happened to some of them. So, I can't read that without thinking about the phones and um, the, the visions that people can have that, that are so personalized that, that there isn't that unifying uh, culture anymore. Um, and, a, and a, you know, like the faces on Snapchat and things like that, you know, it's like, it's, there's a, There's the danger of, of being, um, being lost, to be um, impregnated with this uh, contaminant. And that's what happens to the, one of the two main characters. Um, so I read about Kay and Gerda, the two main characters, these two children. In a big city where there are so many houses and people, that there isn't room for everyone to have a garden. And so most people have to do with flowers and pots. In such a place lived two poor children. But these two did have a, little, a garden a little larger than a flower pot. They were not brother and sister, but they were just as fond of each other as if they had been. Their parents were next door neighbors. They lived in attics at the tops of next door houses where the sloping roofs almost touched, a gutter ran along between. And across this, each house had a little window facing the other. You only had to step along the strip of roof to cross from window to window. After, after Kay has, has the, the piece of glass go in his eye and his heart, They said he, when the grandmother told them stories, he would find fault and argue. He would even walk close behind her, put on spectacles and mimic her way of talking. It was so well done that it made the people laugh. Soon he could mimic the ways of everyone on the street, especially if they were odd or unpleasant. People used to say, oh, he's clever that boy. But all this came from the splinters. They made him even tease little Gerda, who loved him more than anything in the world. His games had become quite different now. They were so scientific and practical. So in that last word, practical, I think uh, how uh, practical is thought of. So we say we, we practice, but maybe practice isn't practical. At least it's not, it's not a useful thing, strictly for utility. 
Um, so it's worth saying, I think. And I'd like to describe the Snow Queen now, who eventually uh, takes Kay. Kay looked at the Snow Queen. She was so beautiful, and he could not imagine a wiser, lovelier face. She no longer seemed to be made of ice, as she once had seemed when she came to the attic window and waved to him. Now in his eyes, she was perfect, and he felt no fear. He told her that he could do mental arithmetic and fractions too, that he knew the square miles of all principal countries and the number of inhabitants. As he talked, she smiled at him until he began to think that what he knew was, after all, not quite so much. And he looked up into the vast expanse of the sky as they rose up high, and she flew with him over the dark clouds while the storm wind whistled and raved, making him think of ballads of olden times. Hans Christian Andersen's father was literate, but they were very poor. And he had a unique sense of all living things and even inanimate things, everyday objects, being imbued with consciousness. So one of Hans Christian Andersen's great gifts and innovations was to have a sort of Miyazaki-style uh, origination of, of life just from anywhere. Uh, and this makes his stories like so um, ephemeral and like charming. Um, if you read like The End of the Little Mermaid, it's just uh, filled with, uh, with um, uh, symbolism, but also just uh, description beautiful descriptiveness. So in the spring, Gerda throws her red shoes into the river and enters this epic quest to find Kay that leads her out of Copenhagen. Uh, she just like, the boat just starts, just leaves the shore and she floats off. Uh, eventually gets to Lapland uh, she's defenseless and she encounters danger repeatedly. Uh, and the last helper for her on her quest is the Finnmark woman. And the reindeer pleads with her. You know, this is what the movie Frozen is based on, loosely. But um, the reindeer pleads with the Finnmark woman to give Gerda some superpower to overcome the Snow Queen. If you remember in Frozen, that, that I think that... The woman, the girl does have a superpower, but there's no superpowers in, in this. In the, super, in the powers that the Snow Queen have, uh, she's not really a villain. She's not good or, or, or bad. So it's like um, Kay has this affliction, and it expresses, like it's then expressed by he's get, he gets taken up with the Snow Queen, which I think is an important distinction. But the Finnmark woman says, I cannot give Gerda greater power than she has already. Don't you see how great that is? How men and beasts all fear, all feel that they must serve her. How far that she has come in the wide world with her own bare feet. She must not learn of her power. It comes from her own, from her being a dear and innocent child. If she cannot find her way into the Snow Queen's palace and free little Kay, 
there's nothing we can do to help. So I think the universal part of this is uh, she's, she is the key because she has the relationship. Um, and when she tells her story, she's, uh, and she's so sincere as a child, then she, she gets this help from unlikely sources. She has this clear vision and she has to go find uh, Kay, but she doesn't know. Um, but she's open and there's no, um, there's no constraints on her, her love and her quest. And finally she arrives. The palace walls were of driven snow and the doors and windows of cutting wind. There were over a hundred halls, just as the drifting snow had formed them, the largest stretched for miles. All were lit by brilliant northern lights. They were vast, empty, glittering, bleak as ice, and deathly cold. In the very midst of the palace, there was a frozen lake. It had split into a thousand pieces, but each piece was so exactly like the next that it seemed not an accident, but a cutting work of art. Snow Queen always sat at the center of this lake whenever she was at home. She used to say that she was on the mirror of reason, the best glass, indeed the only that mattered in the world. Little Kay was quite blue with cold. In fact, he was nearly black, but he never noticed for the Snow Queen had kissed away his shivering and his heart was hardly more than a lump of ice. He was busily dragging about some sharp flat pieces of ice arranging them in every possible pattern. What he was trying to do was to make a special word, and this he could never manage, try as he would. The word was eternity. For the Snow Queen had said to him, if you can spell that out for me, you shall be your own master, and I will make you a present of the whole world, together with a new pair of skates. But still he could not manage it. Kay was quite alone in the vast empty hall, gazing at the pieces of ice and thinking, thinking, until his head seemed to crack. There he sat, stiff and still. Anyone might have thought he was frozen to death. It was just then that little Gerda stepped into the palace through the great doors of cutting winds. But she said her evening prayer and the cold winds dropped as if they were asleep. She entered the vast cold hall and there was Kay. She knew him at once. She rushed forward and flung her arms about his neck and held him tight, crying, Kay, dear little Kay, I found you at last. But he sat there quite still, stiff and cold. Then Gerda began to weep hot tears, which fell on his breast and reached right through his heart. There they thawed, the lump of ice and washed away the splinter of glass. Kay looked up at her and she sang the verse that they used to sing together. In the veil, the rose grows wild. Children play all day. One of them is the Christ child. Then tears came into Kay's eyes too. And as he cried, the splinter of glass was washed away. Now he could recognize her and he cried out joyfully, Gerda, dear little Gerda, where have you been all this time? And what has, what has been happening to me? How cold it is, how huge and empty. 
the air was so filled with their happiness that even the pieces of ice began dancing for sheer delight. And when they were tired and lay down again, they formed the very word that the Snow Queen had told Kay to make. Hand in hand, they walked out of the great palace. Wherever they went, the winds were still and the sun broke out. So, I have some more thoughts, but uh, isn't that beautiful? And then there's the return trip, uh, but wow, the the trip there, um, I kind of focused on Kay's situation, but Gerda's story and how she moves through um, with such courage and, and perseverance. Um, you know, it's, it's the same uh, feeling I had when I heard that song, you know, as a kid. Um, but to have that boundless mind, that original mind that can do anything. And uh, if we practice intensely, um, I think we, we have access to all of these things. Um, but maybe I'll end with um, something from the Zen, uh, Zen's Chinese heritage, Andy Ferguson. Um, which is basically uh, uh, someone from the San Francisco Zen Center um, put together, you know, a pretty um, complete lineage from Bodhidharma to, to Dogen and, and, and into the other schools as well. Um, so you can read about, it's a great book, you can read about um, many of the conversations between teacher and student and talks that were given. And this uh, talk is uh, Wang Long. Master Wang Long addressed the monks saying, this is the first day of interval between practice periods. Worthy monks of the congregation, practice the way joyfully. At night on the long meditation platform, you can stretch your legs and fold them again whenever you please, not according to someone, someone's instructions. When the sun comes up, you can get out of bed and eat some breakfast cakes. When you've eaten your fill, you can relax. At just such a time, what you are doing cannot be called ancient or contemporary. It cannot be considered good or evil. Demons and gods can't find a trace of it. The myriad dharmas are not its partner. Earth can't contain it and heaven can't cover it. 
although it's like this, you still must have pupils in your eyes and blood in your veins. Without pupils in your eyes, how do you differ from a blind person? Without blood in your veins, how do you differ from a dead person? 30 years from now, you won't be able to blame me. When he finished speaking, he got down from the seat and left the hall. Do you have any questions? Thank you. Yeah. So, Travis, you talked about your uh, uh, the happy memory that you had uh, from that song "Jump," uh-huh. right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's like one of the, the lines of thing. Uh, Tell me how you feel, or something about feeling, right? Uh-huh. That song, and then you remember reading story to your child, and then you were talking about how uh, you know in Silicon Valley everything is so intellectual. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the pieces of glass that fell from the sky were also just. It seemed to me that they were an illusion for um, pride and cleverness. And cleverness, pride, intellectualism, all this stuff is good, but it can't really work with what you came right to the end was with uh, which is the feeling of intimacy you know it's that feeling of intimacy the feeling of friendship or sharing uh, spending some time with somebody Mm -hmm. and you know what you did with your your uh, child is spending all those nights reading story or spending time with your uh, cousin listening to the songs you know, those were um, moments of intimacy and of heartfelt joy. And, you know, I was thinking, I think that's what I got from your lecture was that, you know, one thing cannot exist without the other. That intimacy is important, joy is important, but also having that intimacy with whatever you're doing and the feeling that mm-hmm. you're putting into it. Even if you're doing programming, if you do programming with the feeling it's different than just you know just doing it without any feeling you know just doing it as if there's nothing there you know and i think it really makes a difference because when we feel something we do it with feeling it just takes on a life of its own mm-hmm. Yeah, when the magic is gone for too long, yeah, you got to think about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's where the heart comes in. Yeah, you know, the heart comes in, and that's what the feeling is. Mm-hmm. And I uh, thank you. That was that's what I got from it. Was this sense of feeling that we all need to have this sense of feeling and this true eternity flowing is like when you're completely engaged with the practice or whatever you're doing and giving it a feeling, it just talks back to you mm-hmm. through that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it just becomes, you don't even realize that it's talking back to you. Mm-hmm. It sort of starts talking back to you. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it's like, 
you yeah, know. you know, I, I, you know, the song "Let's De- Let's Dance." Uh-huh. I, I don't have any evidence that David Bowie was really writing about the Snow Queen. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I just have correlative evidence. <laughs> <laughs> He's singing about red shoes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and. Um, the joy, you know, yeah. uh, you know, so I just go with it. Yeah. You know, I think he was a, I think he was a Snow Queen fan. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when you were talking about your cousin that when you said, you know, he like this Walkman and listening to Jump for the first time. Mm-hmm. And that is like such a warm memory to be associated with the, the feeling of somebody left you with the yeah. gift, gift and of joy. Uh, yeah. A long, yeah, lifelong. Uh, effect yeah you know and and that sound I, I I've been following that sound ever since yeah isn't yeah. that amazing yeah thank you mm-hmm. one thing I remember hearing was that with this underlying self, uh, if we say like thinking is kind of top of mind, if it's intense, there could there should be an, a foundation underneath that that's also uh, holding it. Yeah, we we have all this suffering, and yet we have to act from where we're at. Uh, these recent wars really saddened me and uh, it attacks my intellect that kind of had hoped that uh, we'd learned some lessons. It doesn't feel that way right now. As a, as a, as a, as a species, as a humanity, collective humanity. And, um, but I, wanted to tell the story about, I wanted to tell, give you the overview of the Snow Queen because uh, I think it's, you know, if we're a startup that's trying to go out into the world and offer something, it's really just one person by one person helping. And, you know, even if there's one person that we help, it's, it's, uh, that's something. It's really something. And, uh, and that's, you know, what motivates me to, to get up really more and more. Although I had to do a, I had to try to knit together these surfaces that, on the computer earlier into a solid surface and even one hair's breadth deviation would fail to turn this collection of surfaces into a solid body. And try as I might, I couldn't get the pieces to line up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's really the people more and more that uh, sustain me, the good people around me fortunate to have this sangha, to have a community, 
And I think about, you know, contemplating some new, in some new way, it's, it's more communal. Yeah. Yeah, and our worlds are still getting bigger. And I say communal, but maybe I mean universal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a, a future without war. That's that's my uh, hope. Thank you. This talk was brought to you by the Canando Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to canando.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G.